Hello and welcome back to Mob Talk everyone. My name is Talia Little and I'm your host. So today is a pretty special episode for myself. Um, I was privileged enough to go back on country a couple of weeks ago, um, back onto my homelands, Luritcher country, um, up in Alice Springs. So with that privilege came being on my country with my 93-year-old nana, my uncle Ryan, who I'm doing the interview with today, um, and lots of other family members that I was able to learn from. So going back on country for me is super important because it re-establishes my connection with my family, my country, the land, um, and really kind of, I don't know, connects me to myself again. You know, being away from country, being in Melbourne, um, although I'm privileged enough to live on Boonerong country, which is absolutely insanely beautiful, and I think about it all the time really, but having the privilege to go back on country and be able to feel those emotions and, and learn all that, I feel quite quite humbled, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, so today I have my Uncle Ryan on the podcast. He is an SBS, NITV broadcaster, producer, all the works, <laughs> um, and a big inspiration to myself. My Uncle Ryan is also the youngest broadcaster on record in Australia and being an Aboriginal man, that's pretty pretty impressive and today we're going to talk about a lot of things including his experience with deaths in custody. Um, today I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners, myself, really, the lands on which I recorded on, my country, my nana's country, Luritcher country and I would like to acknowledge all the families out there that have been affected, all the Aboriginal people that have been affected by deaths in custody um, and I'm sending my love. Welcome to Mob Talk, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Mob Talk with Talia Little. Looks like something nasty. Hello. Wait, do you want to speak into yours just so I can see? Testing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yo, yo. Ryan Little. On country. On location. Live. With Talia. <laughs> okay, okay, I see you. Let me know when. Alright, you can just start filming now. Alright, have a have a speak into it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Level. One, two, one, two. Check. So we've uh we've got a professional on the podcast here today. Everyone, mob talk. We've got my uncle Ryan Little, the little who uh loves himself the most. <laughs> oh, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, we've got my uncle Ryan Little who, um, you know, has been helping me along this journey with Mob Talk, which I'm pretty grateful for. It's pretty awesome to have someone to look up to in this kind of industry, um, in the media world. You know, I've been messaging him a fair bit for a couple of things and he's been helping me out, so that's really appreciated. Uncle Ryan, welcome to Mob Talk. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. That's okay, that's okay. Can you do a bit of an acknowledgement to start off for us? Yes, well, this is uh, the country of our ancestors, our grandmother or my grandmother, your great-grandmother, Bessie Little or Bessie Braden. Yeah, so this is the country where she grew up. As my father and the rest of the family said, she was born not far from here at a place called Iljidari, which is just over this hill to our, to our north. So this is a very special place and we're very 
humbled and privileged to be here. And it's great to see you here. Thanks, Uncle Ryan. It's great to see you here. I haven't seen you in a while mm. through COVID and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty special to have a couple of interviews with our family, your mum, your dad, two big legends. <laughs> Got the love story today. <laughs> that was pretty history, awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Important for you to know all those things. Mm-hmm. So as we've been here for the last couple of days, well, one day actually, we've been walking around and you've been yarning to us about some of the stories. Have you been taught that from a young age or is this something you've come to know over the last couple of years? Or uh, There's stories that you sort of grow up knowing and then there's stories that you will continue learning for the rest of your life. You know, the, the, the day you think you know it all is the day that you are doomed. You must always have a open mind when it comes to learning and listening and especially when you are in the presence of greatness like our matriarch Annabessi and um, going for rides around the country yesterday even though I'm familiar with many of the stories there's always things I'm learning along the way and uh, forever grateful for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's a lot more learning to go? Absolutely. It's never ending, is it? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I've been privileged enough to spend a lot of time out here over the years, but I've also, um, due to my career and my my work, it's taken me away from Central Australia to pursue opportunities on the East Coast and and out of Alice Springs. So you might as well say for a a decade, mid-20s to mid-30s, I've I've been away from this place as far as a full-time basis goes. Mm -hmm. But every chance I get, I come back here and I... And I work or I holiday and sometimes I do a bit of both in between. Mm. Mm-hmm. When you're away, do you feel that strong pull to come back to country? Always, always. The uh, idea of moving away to Sydney to pursue a career in media was uh, done out of necessity at the time. The opportunities here um, sort of was fortunate enough to hit a, a ceiling pretty early on and, and decided to try and make it in the big smoke. Um, but the idea was that was only for a certain amount of time. I didn't have a, a set amount of days, years, etc. But was to learn enough skills to make a name, to do my thing, and then to hopefully one day come back and share what I've learnt in the big smoke to the next generation, people like yourself. Mm-hmm. So where did you start? Did you start with Impaja or ABC down here? I started at Impaja Television. Uh, when I was 17, I started there working in uh, what you call traffic with your uncle Ruri, my cousin, mm-hmm. and I believe your other auntie Catherine Little had read the news there previously. In fact, when I was in year 10, I remember doing an excursion to Impaja when my big sister <laughs> Catherine was reading the news there. So it was only, uh, I guess, fate that I would end up falling into the same footsteps as her and eventually uh, end up via Yamba's Playtime doing a guest reporting, roving repo- reporting role as a 17-year-old out on location. and With Yamba? Yes. Oh, that's a pretty deadly, uh, yeah. deadly thing. For you mob that don't know what Yamba is, Uncle Ryan, can you just give a little bit of an, expect- an, an explanation? <laughs> I, I try to tell people Yamba is the the Humphrey B. Bear of Central Australia. So Yamba is the Yurump, which is the Arunda word for honey ant, which is a local delicacy and well-known uh, insect in Central Australia and many, many parts of the country. And that was the, uh, yeah, that was the, the star of the show. And um, I was working in the traffic department at Impaja, basically doing data entry. Um, at the time, I was uh, 
on $17,000 a year, I think was my first wage, which I thought was a lot of money at the time because at 17, when somebody tells you thousands of dollars, you imagine it on a pile on the table and it sounds pretty <laughs> bloody big, but uh, then you get your first paycheck and it's well, it's not quite how you imagine things. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, I'd done a stint as a labourer where I'd earned more than that money. So mm-hmm. it was a bit of a stark reality going to um, start that sort of job. And then from there, ended up in the programming department doing data entry again, basically responsible for when ads would come on in uh, in the programming throughout the schedule. And uh, one day I was sitting by my desk and our CEO walked past me and he sort of gave me this funny look and I thought, oh, here we go. I'm still on probation. This might be the end of my career here. <laughs> and then he goes in and sees my manager, comes back out and says, oh, you got a, you got a minute to talk? I said, oh, yeah, sure. Thinking I'm about to get the chop for some reason or another. And then he walks me upstairs and sits me down in the in the boardroom and it's just him and I. And I'm still 17 and he says, uh, are you familiar with the phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire? And I said, well, yeah. He said, oh, how would you feel about coming up to the newsroom and reading the weather for Imparja News? <laughs> and I said, oh, so I still got a job pretty much, I thought to myself. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'd love to. And he says, all right. Be down in the studio in uh, five minutes, put a shirt on, put a tie on, and we'll get you in front of the camera to have a go, eh? And I thought, oh, well, that's not how I was expecting that to go, but I'll give this a whack. So I went down there, and I I remember I didn't even know how to put a tie on. And I had to get help putting a tie on and putting a jacket on, and uh, down in the the makeup room and the, you know, change room and all that sort of stuff. They ushered me out into the studio in front of the camera, and they put a script on the auto cue, which is the machine that puts the words in the camera so you can read it as a newsreader. And I, um, it, it was a bit of a blur, really. And I did, I did my five-minute stint, and I remember my hand just being so shaking. nervous. I was shaking <laughs> while I was doing it. And then we sort of uh, we finished up, and the cameraman looked at me, and he sort of gave me a nod, like, oh, yeah, that was all right. <laughs> and, and then the boss sort of walked back in, and he sort of looks at me, and he says, look, it's a, it's a bit rough. But, but you'll do. So <laughs> that's pretty much how I got started from other departments, you know, the mailroom sort of story up into the newsroom. Wow. Sort of happened overnight. And uh, from there I learnt how to read the weather and would, uh, after a while, eventually take, take the newsreader position as well. And I think I was still um, only 17, 18 at that time reading a live half-hour news bulletin. And at the time, I was the youngest newsreader in Australia. So, well, even just in a in a wide aspect, so not just Aboriginal people. Correct, the so youngest newsreader in Australia. Where was this in Imparja? This is at Imparja. So wow. we had a what they call a footprint, which is the broadcast area of something of about four hundred and fifty thousand square kilometres. I think every state and territory except for Western Australia. Um, of course, that's not the way broadcast works exactly. There's a bit of spillage over the borders and even up into parts of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, I've been told, down into some of the urban areas as well, a bit of spillage. But, um, yeah, that's sort of how it started. So the youngest broadcaster, is that how you say it? Youngest TV live newsreader, as Ever. far as I know. In Australia, as far as, as you know. As far as I know, Wow, yes. that's, a, that's a pretty amazing title to have. Oh well, you know me. Put I don't like to resume. make a, I don't like to make a big deal out of these no, things, Tali. No, that's not you at all. 
Not you at all. Mm. Um, so your job now, you're at an ITV and SBS? Correct. Yep. So what does that job entail and I guess what are you putting in to get out of it? Well, I guess I've been there for, I, I started at NITV when it first started and I was actually the first newsreader that NITV had back when it was based in Alice Springs. Once again, teaming up with your auntie, Catherine Little, she would read the weekday news, I would read the weekend news. And that was back when NITV was just a very small blip on the radar. You could only access it via Ostar or what people in the big smoke call Foxtel. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah. Was that a territory thing, Ulster? Uh, or was well, that Australia? I know it was an Alice Springs thing. That's what we yeah. called it here. So um, we started there, did a sort of work simultaneously with Imparja and NITV in, I think, 2007 to 2008, and then returned to the fold in 2012. They invited me back to reprise my role as a newsreader to come on board for the launch of NITV going from Foxtel to free to wear, so anyone in Australia could access it. And we did that with a big launch out at Uluru on the 12th of the 12th, 2012. Wow. That's what I said, yeah. That's pretty That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, was yeah, that deliberate, the 12th of the 12th of the 12th? Yeah, I think so. I think they wanted to um, give people something to remember it by. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, wow. So, in terms of last night we were having a bit of a yarn about your job and, you know, what what you're up to and what you're doing. Oh, correct, correct, yeah. yes. So roles these days, I, I suppose I wear a few different hats at NITV and SBS. Today it's a cowboy hat. <laughs> Today it's a 10-gallon of Cobra. Uh, yeah, so uh, newsreader, journalist, broadcaster, voiceovers, producer, feature writer, video journalist or multimedia journalist. So I film my own stuff. I edit it uh, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, basically pitch stories all around the countryside. Been lucky enough to come back here in November and do a secondment, basically acting as the one of the Northern Territory correspondents and uh, did a story from our humble little homelands where we are now and just what homelands are and what they mean to us. And yeah, it's um, it's been an incredible privilege over the years to meet many amazing people and to take part in many amazing different events. Some of them good, some of them not so good um, in terms of uh, aspects of the story. Some of them are really heavy aspects, mm-hmm. deaths in custody, yep. um, budgets which severely impact Aboriginal Australians around the country. Um, budgets in terms of? Oh, just uh, all sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, the political machinations of the day and, and how decisions in Canberra impact people out here on the ground and even decisions beneath that state, territory, etc. what they mean for us in real world terms. But also uh, giving voice to the voiceless, our people who have, um, you know, always been trying to have uh, their opinions and and worries, concerns, Mm -hmm. aspirations heard by those who make decisions. Yeah, I mean, as a little girl, it was pretty cool to see you know, your Uncle Ryan on TV. Mm-hmm. When I was, uh, I remember staying, stopping over with Gran in that small house, I don't, near Anna Catherine's house, mm. you know, that little one. And we'd always turn on the TV and see you. And I was like, oh, that's my Uncle Ryan. And then it'd come on and say, oh, that's my Auntie Catherine. <laughs> and it's pretty deadly to have family on TV. And know? look at you now. And look at me now. 
bigger star than Uncle Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> you just wait. No, I'm um, so taking it back to deaths in custody. Now, this is a pretty, pretty uh, touchy subject, really. You know, for our mob, it's happening way too much. Um, it's always happened from the beginning. And, you know, we're rising, we're starting to have a voice that's being heard, mm-hmm. I'd say. You know, on social media, I'm seeing a lot more um, a lot more information around this topic, a lot more awareness, not enough. But we had a rally for, oh, what was it at the start of the year? We had a rally. Um, Black Lives Matter, perhaps? No, nah, not Black Lives Jan 26? Jan 26, changed the date um, in Melbourne. And I wasn't fortunate enough to go that day, but they had one of the sister girls up there talking about deaths in custody and... You know, it's a it's a pretty full on topic, to say the least. Calling it how it is. You know, what are your thoughts and what have you worked on in terms of death in custody? Well, unfortunately, more than I can uh, remember or enough to quantify and put a number on. But certainly, I've been in TV since I'm 17, and I'm 34, turning 35 now. So that's 16, 17 years of covering Indigenous affairs. So. Uh, many of these issues that I cover today are very similar to what I covered years ago. And, you know, that's just my little snapshot of covering Indigenous affairs. There's people who've been doing it far longer than I have and um, their experiences would be similar in that respect. I would like to say things are getting better. And, um, you know, we've seen, uh, I think this month is actually the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Black Deaths and Custody. And there were a number of recommendations of out of that, which were said to help avoid those those deaths because one black death in custody is too many deaths in custody. Mm-hmm. However, despite three decades onwards, many of those recommendations have not been in, enacted, and um, I, I think we we would certainly like to see that happen. And I think the time of inquiries and reports and uh, observations I, I, I don't I don't think we need any more of those I think now is the time for action mm-hmm. now what is causing these deaths in custody is it the racism is it the mistreatment to Aboriginal people in terms of health is it them not having a voice that's being heard what what is the main common denominator there are a culmination of factors one unfortunately, is the fact that there's too many of our mob inside, mm-hmm. uh, which is the sad reality of, um, of, of a lot of our, of our mob. You know, there's just too much of us on the inside. And if you want to look why they're inside, then there's, once again, numerous sort of factors, many intergenerational trauma, um, hardship, poverty, etc., policies that have been put in place, which um, perhaps unfairly target our, our, our mob more than the rest of society. Uh, but there's certainly aspects outside of those um, those figures that could certainly contribute to less of our mob dying in custody. We hear recommendations all the time about um, perhaps uh, police holds that, uh, that are almost too effective in the way that they restrain some people and um, the concerns of of people inside who who might have pre-existing medical conditions which are often overlooked or not given the importance which they deserve at the time. Um, Things as simple as uh, people receiving their medication while they're inside and and that unfortunately leaves them more vulnerable than usual to physical and emotional 
duress and distress. Hmm. Yeah, wow, it's it's a pretty crazy thing to um, to go through that and to be a reporter for those kind of events. How do you uh, detach from things that are so close to home? Being an Aboriginal person, I find myself that you know it's you know you, you do have a pretty thick skin being an Aboriginal person, to say the least. But <laughs> you know it it does hit home. Yeah, it does, and I I think. Um you know, as a as a predominantly a newsreader and broadcaster, it's it's a it's a, a tough thing to do to deliver a story with sort of that impact and gravitas that it deserves, while not being too caught up by it that you that you can't do your job by delivering that information to to people who want to hear it. But yeah, certainly it's it's had its toll over the years. Um, un- unfortunately, when you are meeting families, friends, descendants of these people who have passed away, you, you, it takes a while to gain their trust. And I've, because I've, I've been working in the field for many years now, thankfully I have people who sort of trust me to tell their story and their family story. But often with that, it's um, they're recounting and retelling me stories which are really quite hard to hear how close they were to this person, what kind of person uh, their relative or friend might have been. Um, you know, I've been invited to the homes of uh, people who have passed away in jail and, and their rooms were left the same as when the day they left. So uh, yeah. to be seeing these family photos and this outpouring of grief, it's only natural that you almost inherit that and and shoulder that um that pain through osmosis just being with these people you know um and it can be very tough to look at your watch at five o'clock and say oh well no worries it's um time to head home so you you go home and you know i yeah often sort of have these stories rolling around in my head and um yeah it's really quite sad because often they're quite close to home. You might know of an uncle or an auntie or a cousin who has a similar story. So it is very, very tough. And I think that's why nowadays there is a lot more focus on um, uh, personal well-being and, and uh, there's services available for, for journos and people who are sort of at the coalface to, to deal with that, um, that grief and that emotion. Uh, there could always be more done. And it's it's quite easy these days. I know certainly some of my colleagues who've who've covered these cases intimately find themselves quite burnt out, and just even the smallest things can can stress them out. And um, even myself, you know, you have uh, you get this sort of depression, anxiety that that goes with covering these things. It's it's the human condition. We can only take so much, and um, that's why it's good to have a balance if you can between jobs like that which are quite tough and then other jobs jobs which are a bit more uplifting and inspirational and um, you know we try to keep a fair balance of of all of those things Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and uh, I guess your story your personal story Talia is one of inspiration I guess it's uh, humbles me to see you out here doing your thing and interviewing your people and hearing probably a lot of history and and stories for the first time yourself so yeah Yeah, might be time to pass the Baton. Well, there you go. <laughs> I might be on uh, NITV soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hand over the reins. So, with your permission, if you don't want to speak about this, you don't have to, but last night we were having a bit of a yarn about when you were in Alice Springs. Mm-hmm. Do you know what story I'm talking about? 
there's probably a lot of stories, hey, that happened in Alice Springs. Um, when Nana Lorraine was chasing you in the car about the police thing. <laughs> Am I allowed to speak about this? Yeah, sure. Or you, you know. You so we're talking about deaths in custody, you know, uh, blackfellas in custody really. And um, how was that for you? kind of being a suspect of a shooting. Now, if you could please explain to people, you know, that sounds pretty pretty horrendous out front, but it is, you know. Um, uh, yeah, look, it was a case of, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. I happened to be down in Alice Springs attending a funeral of a dear friend of mine who had passed away from suicide. And I was down here grieving and attending the funeral. And the car that I happened to be driving in was... Uh, a similar make and model to one that was uh, of interest to police to a shooting in town while I was here. And as such, um, the police sort of tracked me down via my my family. And, and then I was, um, yeah, essentially asked to come into the police station to make a statement about my whereabouts and, and, and basically explain myself and give my story, why I wasn't... Um, why I wasn't the person they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, you said last night that when you did go into the police station, they brought you upstairs, no lawyer, no nothing. Was that offered to you? Not that I reckon, can recall, no. Now, this is one of the many things that I mean is maybe one of the causes of the mistreatment of Aboriginal people going through the legal system. You know, you're a well-known news presenter, well-known Aboriginal person, well-respected Aboriginal man from Alice Springs and... You know, even then, you can speak English, you know, you're well-educated, you weren't offered a lawyer. Imagine what our mob that don't understand the legal system are offered. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, there's, um, I'm sure there's plenty of tireless hard workers out there, many of our family who work with um, Aboriginal legal services over the years and they've um, provided a, a great help to uh, many of our mob and many of our mob who might be even at a further disadvantage, as you said, communication barriers and uh, education barriers in some aspects. But uh, yeah, like you said, there's me who sort of um, has a little less of those uh, hindrances in regards to dealing with the law. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think, um, yeah, it could have went either way, really. If I'd said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing, I, I wouldn't have had any representation there. That's a pretty scary thought. In hindsight, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really thought about it too much at the time. I, As I said, I sort of had a, a great personal grief that I was dealing with at the time. So this was just a, a hindrance um, more than anything as I had duties that pertain to that, what I, what I mentioned. But uh, certainly on hindsight, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit scary. Mm. Mm. So on a lighter subject, what's next for Ryan Little? Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. So while I've enjoyed my TV career for many years and all the offerings that it's, um, you know, had for me, including hosting Australia's first Aboriginal, all Aboriginal TV breakfast show last year, Big Mob Brecky. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the mob, <laughs> NITV mob for that. Um, I've also been doing other things on the side, MC work, mm-hmm. consultancy work, uh, voiceover work, etc. And I think... Uh, as well as coming out here and offering, uh, I guess, cultural guides or tour guides to various 
uh, groups that have come through to our beautiful homelands to visit and share our experience. Yep. I think that uh, probably beckons me as well as my my parents probably want to. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say offload some of that work, but certainly share some of that responsibility. So I think I could probably see myself taking a bigger role in that, and um, yeah, bringing bringing Aboriginal culture to the masses. Yeah. Showing people our way. Yeah. Making, helping them understand what's... Yeah, and, and just, you know, I, I think uh, when I, I, I sort of have this personal story of when I first went to New Zealand and was greeted at the airport with these amazing, beautiful wooden carvings and um, words in local Maori language and greetings and traditions and customs essentially offered to you on arrival in New Zealand and, and touring New Zealand for a few weeks there and hearing tour guides offer stories of the area primarily in Maori and then giving you the English explanation. I, I found that quite jarring coming from Australia where you'd hear all about explorers mm-hmm. and and their take on the countryside and then you might hear a little bit about the indigenous culture, mm. a little bit about the mob that used to live here or a little bit about the mob that call this place home. So um, I think we need to change the ratio of that where we're hearing our stories first and our way. Oh, 100%. I often say to people that don't understand Aboriginal way is that you like you have to come and sit with elders and learn the language or, or learn why we respect and love the country so much to understand why we are the way we are. Yeah, yeah. And I think that concept of uh, belonging to country and all that sort of stuff, it's generally lost on the, the rest of um, Australia. And it's not for... You know, sure, there are things that are secret and sacred, but for the most part, we want to share our belongings and beliefs. But unfortunately, due to the way that the country was settled, we weren't always encouraged to do that. Mm. Well, thanks, Uncle Ryan, for chatting with me today on our homeland, uh, Luricha country. What did what was the name again for our homeland? Ildijari is where your great-grandmother was born, or mm-hmm. Kurukuku, which is this area here, and it's named after the mulga tree, which is uh, in abundance in this area. It's what sets this little place apart. We're right on the rocky country and the sand dune country, so a beautiful place. Pretty special to be recording here today, and I'm, I'm so grateful for you mob coming on and talking to me and your guidance in this, in this industry, or well, even though I'm working you know, as a youth worker at the moment. Um, doing mob talk and giving a voice to other Aboriginal people is pretty important to me and obviously is important to you. So thanks, Uncle. Thank you very much. And uh, I wish you the, the best of luck in your future. And if there's any way that I can help you or other mob mm-hmm. who want to get out into media or broadcasting, then, uh, yeah, drop us a line. Always oh, happy to help. Actually, one last thing before we go. <laughs> what is some advice you can give to young black women or boys that are interested in this career? Well, I think it's it's funny. There has uh, long been a, a stigma attached to our mob for sort of speaking up about being shame or shame job and, and, and not wanting to sort of be vocal for fear of repercussion or just uh, not being encouraged to speak, particularly the generation before mine and, and, and theirs again even further. But now the time is right and the future is in the hands of uh, people like yourself and, and the next generation even. So get out there, give it a crack. Uh, fortune favours the bold. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. Mob talk with Tali Little and Ryan Little today. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Thanks everyone for joining us on Mob Talk this week. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and don't forget to chuck us a follow on Instagram. And we'll see you all for another yarn soon.